Well, happy Father's Day. I know that if we had a camera on all of our dads here at church and watching along at home 24-7, we could compile a video like that in about a week of moments that you have like that in your day-to-day. So I just want you to know that today we appreciate you for saving our lives so many times that we don't even remember. (laughs) The lockdown that we've been going through, I want to say, has been especially hard on my dad. And I'm sure it's been especially hard on a lot of you dads out there, particularly because during the lockdown, we've not been able to watch sports. And my dad has coped with this through a variety of mechanisms, such as... um, You know how digging up old games, I think on some sports channels they've been playing these old games so that people can get their fix before we get new sports once the restrictions are lifted and people can gather again. But my dad, like many dads, loves sports. He watches every game during football and basketball season and he loves hockey, boxing, you name it, if it's a sport, he'll watch it. And so I'm sure my dad was very excited when he had four sons. In my family, it's me, and I have three brothers, and we have no sisters. And I'm sure my dad was excited to have four boys that would grow up and watch sports with him and play sports and be athletes. And, well, they say God has a sense of humor because uh, neither me nor any of my brothers, having grown up, has any interest uh, in watching sports or playing sports. None of us ever really got into sports at all. So throughout my childhood, my dad sought to remedy the situation by involving us in every sport possible, making us try at least one year in every sport to see what would stick. So growing up, I spent a year, at least a year in soccer, basketball, I played t-ball, football, track, none of it stuck. And to my dad's credit, whenever I said that I'd rather be in chess club instead of runner's club, or when I picked orchestra over football, he never said a word. He always let me and my brothers follow our own interests and make our own way. Finally, though, (laughs) uh, my twin brother Alex and I did find a sport that stuck, competitive swimming. And uh, I know that some kids uh, are involved in swimming here at this church. Some of you parents have been to swim meets. And let's be honest, (laughs) going to a swim meet is just, it's not the same. It's not as fun. There's not as much energy as going to a football game. You sit there in this sweaty natatorium for hours waiting for your kids, 45-second race, and then you're like, is that my kid? Is that my kid? And there and back, and it's over. And my dad showed up. He came to my swim meets. You know, he sat there, and he watched us. He waited. He was in the stands. He was cheering. And as far as I could tell growing up, he was just as excited to watch his kid in a swim cap as in a football helmet. My dad came when I was in a chess tournament and watched me play chess. He came to my cello recitals when I played cello. And when I started performing slam poetry, some of y'all have seen me do this before growing up here at this church. My dad, and if you know my dad, you understand this is a big deal. My dad came and he would watch live poetry readings and poetry recitations. I'm not kidding. I don't think this is what he expected when he had four sons, that he would end up watching chess and cello and poetry. And it took me years to realize that my dad didn't show up for his own entertainment because he wanted to watch the event of what it was. He showed up for me. And it took me years to realize that my dad showed up just because he loved me and that he would be proud of me no matter what it was I was doing. And that's something that he taught me consistently throughout my life. And I know that so many dads here feel the same way about their kids. And kids don't understand this about their dads, that they're not there to watch the game. They're there to watch their kid. This Father's Day, we acknowledge you. We appreciate you so much. All the sacrifices that you make, making your kids feel special and valuable. We talked last week 
about resilience and how resilience takes a lifetime to build. Resilience, it's not a marathon virtue. Or it's, it's, a, it's a marathon virtue, it's not a sprint virtue, right? It's not something that you can develop in a second or that you can just choose from minute to minute. Resilience is something that you have to build over the course of a lifetime. And fatherhood is the same way. Fatherhood takes resilience. Resilience, passion plus perseverance. Grit applied in a consistently right direction over time. To be a father, it's a lifelong commitment. I was really excited that one of the Sundays that I would be here and be able to uh, be with you was Father's Day. Because last fall, my wife and I drove up to Sacramento to a Dave Ramsey conference. Now, we're big fans of Dave Ramsey, and he has these conferences all over the country where they talk about finances and family in a faith-based perspective. And we saw a speaker at this conference named Dr. Meg Meeker, and she delivered a talk about fatherhood. It changed my perspective on this entire issue. And I'm really excited to share some of her research that I've been looking up today. I encourage you to look it up. She's a pediatrician for over 25 years. She's written six books on the subject of parenting. And her talk about fatherhood that I saw last fall, it captured a cultural phenomenon that I had noticed, but I hadn't really put into words before. I'm sure that all of you have seen it as well. She called it dad bashing, dad bashing. And this is something that we see in media, commercials, Uh, on the news, on the TV shows that we watch. And I want to clarify before I dive into this. When I say dad bashing, I'm not talking about dad jokes. Not the same thing at all. Dad jokes are great. You know, when you go to your dad and you say, Dad, I'm hungry. What does your dad say? Hi, hungry. I'm dad. Those are great. You know, we need more of that in the world. And dad jokes, you know, we got to let dads let off that steam every now and then. Not bashing dad jokes at all. What I mean when I say dad bashing is that when you turn on the TV and you see commercials, you see TV shows, movies, dads have become the butt of every joke. This started, according to Dr. Meeker's research, in the 1970s and 80s um, as women gained social power and influence and as youth culture exploded in America, advertising executives, Hollywood writers, they were cashing in on this new animosity toward father figures. And they did what funny people do. They were picking at authority figures to be edgy, and it worked. And honestly, it's pretty funny. You watch some of these shows, these commercials, the bumbling dad, the caricature, and it's pretty funny. But since then, Dr. Meeker's research shows the ripple effects in our culture have been exponential. And this idea of dad bashing has kind of overtaken our culture today. Let me show you just one example. These are two advertisements that have since been pulled after a lot of backlash. Uh, One is from Clorox. And it was an entire ad campaign designed around teaching dads how to use cleaning products with the joke being that they don't know how. And what it says there at the bottom is, like dogs or other house pets, new dads are filled with good intentions but lack the judgment and fine motor skills to execute well. And the entire ad campaign was a series of commercials with dads trying to use cleaning products that didn't know how to do it. And um, it was... It was funny, but can you see the damaging effect this could have on kids that are watching ads like this when how they think about their own dad? Or Huggies ran another ad, and they pulled this, and they completely apologized for it, so I don't want to bash these brands. I'm just showing you these as examples. Huggies did an advertisement campaign called Put Them to the Dad Test, saying put our products to the dad test to say even a dad can do this. And the commercials were that uh, the mom would leave for five days, the dad would be home alone with only the the kids and Huggies products, and can he manage to take care of these kids? And Huggies can withstand even the dad test. And the jokes in the commercials were like dads, you know, they'd be watching the game and they'd go into overtime and they don't change the diaper all day. Jokes like that. And so they pulled the commercials and they apologized, but this is a phenomenon that we see everywhere. 
Try it out on your, uh, for yourself at home with your family next time a commercial break starts. Play, play a new game called Rate That Father, okay? Play Rate That Father. Every time a commercial starts or a TV show starts and there's a dad featured on your screen, go ahead and rate that father at the end of the ad. Just how good of a job is he doing? Do his kids respect him? Does it look like his marriage is in a good order? Is it following any kind of biblical model? Just rate that dad, and I think you'll start to see this everywhere. Back in the day in TV shows, we had near-perfect dads like Andy Griffith, right, and Ward Cleaver, who were these idealized sources of wisdom. They'd show up at the end of the episode and solve all the problems. And this started to shift in shows like, you know, The Cosby Show, Family Ties, Growing Pains, Full House, And then in the 80s, we get to shows like Married with Children, and then the ultimate dad bashing show, The Simpsons. And by the time I was growing up, and all the millennials in the room will appreciate this, and kids will understand this, by the time I was growing up, you could spin a roulette wheel with every Disney Channel show on it, and anywhere it landed, the dad in that show, guaranteed, would be unaware of what's going on, he would be lazy, he'd be outwitted at every turn by his kids, by other people, by his wife, by their pets, by everything. He was the butt of every joke. You know, dad, this phenomenon of dad bashing, it's everywhere, and it's growing, and people are starting to recognize this. And you might be thinking to yourself while I'm saying all this, okay, calm down. Like, these are just TV shows. These are just ads. Like, it's not that big a deal. Don't get outraged about everything. We don't want to be those hysterical Christians who throw a fit every time the culture does something secular. It's a secular culture. It's supposed to be secular. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus told his followers who were going out into the world, he said, you need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And when we engage our culture, that's advice we need to take to heart. We need to be innocent. Don't assume the worst. Don't be cynical. But at the same time, be wise. Be wise in what you watch. Be wise in what your kids watch. Do you know what they're watching? We need to be wise because the shows that we watch and that our kids watch train us to see the world in a certain way often in an unbiblical way. The programs that we watch program us. The programs that we watch program us. And you might be thinking, I'm immune to that. You know, yeah, everybody else, I hope you're listening because you're getting programmed. But I'm, I'm smart. I see right through it. I don't get, nobody is immune to it. It happens to you. It happens to me. You get programmed by the way you watch to learn how to talk to other people, the patterns and cadence of your speech, how you think relationships work. The programs that we watch, they program us. And most importantly, our kids are not immune to this. Kids learn by watching. And when they watch shows where people act a certain way, that's how they start to watch. Think about it this way. When our sons grow up and have kids of their own, if their only model for fatherhood was the media that they've consumed in their life, what kind of fathers would they be? Or when our daughters grow up and they're evaluating men to date or to marry, to be a father to their children, if their only model of fatherhood was what they've consumed from media, what kind of father would they be looking for? The pediatrician, the researcher that I watched last fall, Dr. Meeker, she put it this way. She said, if you could just sit in my office and see how kids talk to their dads, it's phenomenal. Dads are not respected. They're not revered. And it's an enormous problem. Why? Let me tell you why this is a national crisis. Dads are the central figure in the identity formation of a child. Kids watch their dads. They read their dad's faces and watch their body language, not because they care about dads. They're not that nice. Kids are very self-centered. They're looking at their dads to try to figure out things about themselves. Kids are constantly searching you because they need to figure out things about them. Now, 
All of us can remember a time when we were growing up looking to our parents, looking to our fathers for answers to questions we didn't even have the vocabulary to ask yet. Questions like, who am I? Am I worthwhile as a person? Am I fun to be around? Do you like me? Am I smart? Am I pretty? Am I funny? A kid might not know how to ask those questions or even know that those are the questions on their mind, but they're asking them every day and they're watching for answers, not out loud physical answers, but in just the attitude that their parents present towards them. The facial expressions, the way they allocate their time. If a father is so crucial to a child's development, what happens when a father's out of the picture? I wanna talk about this because I've been reading about it all week and there's a lot of new and important research that's coming out about fatherhood and the absence of fatherhood as fatherless families are increasing in our culture. And the statistics that I've been looking at this week and that I wanna share a few of these with you are overwhelming. There were times I was reading about this, I had to stop and just take a break because it's overwhelming and it's very sad. And I wanna share some of these numbers with you, but before I do, I wanna stop right here. I just wanna put on the brakes for just a minute. And I wanna say that I'm very sensitive this morning to the fact that I'm talking to a lot of families right now, either here in this auditorium with us or watching along at home where dad isn't around. Where, or, or maybe you're an adult and you have your family today, but when you were growing up, your dad wasn't around or wasn't available. And maybe that's because dad was separated from the family through death or through divorce, or for some reason dad was distant or unavailable or he was there, but he was distant or unavailable. For some of us, for some people, listening here today, dad was around, but he wasn't a godly figure, a godly model in your life. A bad father can be a tyrant, can be abusive, can be worse than having no dad at all. And if that's your story, I want to stop right here and I want to tell you loud and clear that we see you on Father's Day. I get that this might be the hardest day of the year for some people. This might be the first Father's Day where dad's not around. If that's your story, I get that your pain is real. And here at this church, we want to help you with that. We wanna help you navigate that difficult path and be involved in that in whatever way that we can. On days like today, I, I feel the pressure of my role, which is to speak truth in love. I see that as my role and that requires sensitivity, but it also requires boldness. And so sensitively, but boldly, I wanna affirm this morning to everyone that God's plan for us is that we live in families that have a father and a mother. And in a lot of cases, that's not what we're seeing in the world. And that's not your fault. Sometimes things get in the way. Sometimes, can take, sometimes uh, circumstances can take a dad out of a family or a mom out of a family or break up that unit. But God's intent is that families exist with a father and a mother. And when things get in the way of that plan, we can recover. We can still have fruitful lives. God can work through any circumstances. But when we depart from God's ideal, things will be more difficult. So if that's your story this morning, I wanna acknowledge you. I wanna say that we're here to help you. We're here to listen to your story and be involved in that in whatever way we can. With that being said, I wanna share with you some of the data that I discovered researching this idea of children raised in fatherless families. And all the statistics, and I'll share my sources with you if you'd like to learn more about this, are from the US Census Bureau, from the CDC, and from the Department of Justice. Take a look at some of these statistics with me. 63% of youth suicides come from fatherless homes. That's five times the national average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children, that's 32 times the average. 85% of all children who show behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes, that's 20 times the average. 71% of all high school dropouts, nine times the average. 
75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. That's 10 times the average. 70% of youths in state-operated institutions come from fatherless homes, nine times the average. 85% of all youths in prison come from fatherless homes. That's 20 times the average. Some sobering numbers. And as an aside here, it's still too early. We don't have a lot of good data on kids raised in what are, what's being called non-traditional families. That's families with two moms or two dads. And we don't have a lot of data yet on how kids in those families turn out where they don't have both a mother and a father in the picture, but they have two parents just of the same gender. And I expect we'll see data coming out in this decade or in the next decade as more and more kids are raised in that situation. And I expect it'll look a lot like this because what we see when we separate our children from God's model for what a family should look like is difficult situations arise in their lives. Now again, I'm aware I'm talking to some fatherless families this morning and I wanna tell you when we look at these numbers, this does not have to be your story. This is not a sentence that will be carried out. This doesn't have to be your story. God can step into any situation and change that and redeem that for the good. And I also want to say that there are so many men at this church, so many fathers at this church who are equipped and who are ready and eager to mentor your kid and to be a father figure in their life. Just reach out and get in touch with us. We would love to help you with that situation however we can. These numbers that we're looking at on the screen are a tragedy. But they're not a mystery. When you look at these numbers, there's one thing causing all of them, and that's the absence of fathers. What we need to do in our churches and in our homes and communities is build strong marriages that can support kids. And we need young people to start getting married again in the first place because marriage rates are plummeting. We need to model for our culture that marriage matters, not because it makes you happy, not because it accommodates your feelings or brings you pleasure, but that marriage exists first to make you holy and to give you a picture of God's love through your spouse. And then marriage exists and it matters because it's where we can raise our kids with a model of God reflected in a mother and a father. Now I wanna show you this graph uh, to talk about how serious these numbers really are. When it comes to fatherlessness, this is growing every year. In a lot of cases, in a lot of communities, it's growing exponentially. We have, census, sorry, we have census data from 2017 that shows about 20 million American kids live without a father in their home. That's about one in four kids in America are growing up in a fatherless home. One in four. Now, if you look at this slide, the blue line in the middle is the national numbers. And this is data from the CDC. You can see that in the 1940s, the national non-marital birth rate was around 5%. Today, it's around 40%, and it's going up every year. Why does taking a father out of the picture have such a devastating effect on kids? Why is that true? Well, what I want to do now is I want to turn back to the very beginning. I want to flip back to Genesis chapter 1 and uh, look at verse 27, when God first created human beings. Now, I think this is one of the most important verses in the Bible. If you don't know Genesis 1:27, this is a good verse to memorize for our culture today. Just after God finishes creating human beings, we see this affirmation that speaks such an important truth into our lives and into our families. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, one thing that strikes me about this verse is the grammar of it. Now, take a look at this word image here. The word image is singular. God created them in his own image, right? 
But look at what God made in his singular image. He makes two different things that look different, male and female. It would make more sense if this said, so God created mankind in his own images. In the images of God, he created them, male and female, right? Two different images, but it's singular. There's one image of God that he chose to create in two different forms. He divided his image between men and women. And what does that tell us? That they're equal image bearers of our creator. And when we unite that in marriage, we see this clear and beautiful picture of God that you can't find anywhere else. Genesis 1.27 teaches us that this image of God shows up in our world in two ways. It teaches us how men and women are different. It teaches us why men and women are different, which is way more important. They reveal the image of God in different, unique ways. But since they're both the image of God, it's the same picture. When we put them together in marriage, we see God in a new way. Now, the reason I bring this up is because if you take a father out of that picture, things change. Now, you still get a whole picture of God as revealed in a mother. Don't hear me saying that if you're single, you're not a whole person. If you're single, you're not reflecting the image of God. That's not what I'm saying at all. That's not biblical. It's not true. What's true is that when a man bearing the image of God and a woman bearing the image of God unite in marriage, they together create a new image of God in their marriage that's different from either one of them. It's a whole new picture of the unity that we see in God. And we see this picture celebrated in Scripture, elaborated on all throughout the story of Scripture. When God chooses the family of Abraham to build a nation out of his descendants, when God gives the fifth commandment, which says, honor your father and mother, and it will go well with you. The story of God's people in the Old Testament is the story of God using broken families and imperfect fathers to build a kingdom. One passage, I think, that captures this best, and this is where I want to sit with you for just a minute here, is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you have your Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul is writing to the early church, and he's talking about the work that they did with the church and how the hierarchy of the church authority can work. And the context of what he's talking about is not as important as the way he talks about it. Now, I want to read through, starting in verse 6 with you, and I want you to pay attention as we read to the metaphors that Paul uses to talk about how the church works. Look how many different analogies there are in this short passage for family. Okay, starting in verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul says, We were not looking for praise from people, nor from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Every single part of the family structure that God built gives a metaphor for how Christians should treat each other. And we see Paul using all of them just in this one short passage. He says, first, we came to you not on some kind of ego trip or some kind of as, as authoritarians to lord it over you. We came to you like children to cooperate with you, to be humble and submissive to you. Then he says, just like a nursing mother, we shared ourselves with you. 
We delighted to share with you. We shared our very lives with you. We gave without expecting anything in return. And we all know what that means because we know what it means to be a mother. And so we get that image for what the community of God looks like. He calls them brothers and sisters when he talks about how they labored alongside each other. He says, we worked as equals in the field together. We toiled, we suffered together as brothers and sisters. And we know what that means because the family of God involves siblings, brothers and sisters in that relationship. And finally, here at the end in verse 11 and 12, he claims the role of father, and he talks about church leadership and what that should look like. And I want to close here, and I want to talk about how he describes fatherhood for just a minute. But before I do, I want to clarify something. This is not meant to be a, a lesson to give fatherhood advice to you from me. What we're doing today is a celebration of fatherhood and what it means in a series about resilience. I am not a father. And I do not feel qualified to give fatherhood advice to some of you who've been doing this for decades. I've been married for two years. And for all two of those years, my wife and I have been living in California. And we're going to be living in California for one more year. And we're not going to have a baby on foreign soil. So I'm not a father yet. I won't be for at least a year. And uh, I'm not trying to give fatherhood advice to some of you who've been doing this longer than I've been alive. But I do want to point out. Paul's quick description here in 1 Thessalonians 2 of fatherhood, the way that he just quickly describes it with just these three short little attributes, it ties in perfectly to what we're talking about in this series, the virtue that we're discussing and learning about this summer called resilience. Paul says, the way a father deals with his children, it looks like this, encouraging them, comforting them, and urging them to live lives worthy of God. Fathers, this is what your kid needs from you. This is what scripture says, not what I'm saying. This is what scripture says your kid needs from you, what a father looks like. They don't need a perfect, flawless superhero. They just need you there to encourage them. They don't need you to shield them from all the pain in the world and all the failure they'll ever experience. They need you to comfort them when that happens. And the most important thing your kids need from you is for you to urge them to live lives worthy of God. Your kids don't need to learn skills from you or knowledge from you as much as they need to learn values. Why do you live the way you do? Why do you believe what you believe? Why is the way that you live right instead of some other way to live? These are the questions that your kids are asking you when they don't have the vocabulary yet to ask you. They're asking you in the way they watch you, in the way they look at how you act every day. It's not something, a question you can answer with a sentence. You have to answer it with your life. And that's why fatherhood takes resilience. It takes a lifetime. Encourage your children. Comfort them. Urge them towards a godly life. According to the Bible and scripture here in Paul's description, that's your job as a father. Now there is one aspect of fatherhood that I do feel abundantly qualified to speak to, and I will do that here as we close, and that is fathers who are uh, insecure about filling this role because you're imperfect. Fathers who have made mistakes. Fathers who feel like they've done a bad job, they have regrets, they're not the best father in the world. I'm qualified to speak to, to this not because I'm a father, but because I'm a human being. There's only ever been one perfect dad. One, and that's God. And when God created two children, Adam and Eve, what happened? They got perfect parenting from the perfect father, and look how they turned out. They brought sin into the world, and look how their kids turned out. One of them was the first murderer. He killed his brother. 
The lesson we can take from that is that no matter how good of a dad you are, you can't control exactly how your kids turn out. No dad is perfect. And when one of them was, the imperfection of human beings is still going to cause them to sin. The Bible guarantees that as a father, you will fail. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are freely justified by his grace. But it's guaranteed that you will be an imperfect father. Now that is not a reason for you to quit. It's not a reason for you to get discouraged. It's a reason for you to celebrate the part you get to play in God's plan. Why? Because your kids are gonna fail. Your kids are gonna be imperfect because they're humans too. And they need to watch you fail. They need to watch you be imperfect so that they know how to do it well. Your resilience, dads, and your lifelong battle of fatherhood is going to teach your kids resilience in their own lives. It's just like we talked about last week. Resilience takes a lifetime. It's not a sprint virtue. It's a marathon virtue. And fatherhood is a marathon. So as you're doing this, show your kids how to do it well, how to be resilient when they fail, how to get back up, because it will happen to them. And they'll know what to do because they've seen it happen to their dad. Your failures don't have to turn into regrets. They can be opportunities to show your kids how to follow God well, to encourage them, to comfort them, and to urge them to live lives worthy of their God. Now, at the beginning of this lesson, we talked about a fake image of fatherhood, a fake image that we call dad bashing that's being pushed on our culture uh, that's being pushed on us by our enemy and trying to destroy the family unit and trying to destroy the gift of fatherhood. And as we talked about this, talked about this at the beginning, we see this dad bashing showing up everywhere. So as we close, I want to show you a different image. I want to show you a video of what real dads actually look like. What we see on TV is created. It's fiction made by ad executives or by Hollywood writers cooked up to get some laughs or to sell us something. I want to show you what real dads look like, unscripted, what actual dads in the real world look like. I want to show the kids in this room what a real dad does. And fathers, I want you to see how your kids look at you. I want you to watch this, no matter how good of a job or bad of a job you've done as a dad, just by nature of being a dad, this is how your kid sees you. When you walk in a room, when you encourage them, when you comfort them, this is how we look at you.
No one can be that for your child except you. This is how your kids see you. You're irreplaceable to them. It doesn't matter how good of a job you think you've done. You're a hero to your kids. Wives, moms, this is how your kids see their father. Is the way that you talk about him reflect this, this image that your kids have of him as their hero, as their savior? We need to treat dads this way with respect so that they can fill their biblical role in their kids' lives of being a hero. Nobody else can do what you do, dads, and we're so grateful for you. We love you. And today we celebrate you. And kids, this week, if you're there with your dad, or if you're not with your dad, give him a call and just tell your dad, just say to him, I'm grateful. And your dad is going to turn to you and you know exactly what he's going to say. Thanks, grateful. I'm dad. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for being the perfect father. For allowing us as your children to partake in your image. That we get to be fathers in this life to our own children. The incredible privilege that is. Forgive us when we fail to live up to your standards as fathers and help us to do better. God, I pray for all the fathers in this room and watching at home and for all the wives that support them and live with them and love them and all the kids that look up to them, I pray for these families that you would protect them from the attacks of our culture, that you would help those fathers to live into your biblical model for them and their lives and their fatherhood. We thank you so much for the fathers that you've given us in our lives, for the dads and for the men who function as dads in so many lives of kids who don't have dads or who need that father figure in their life. We praise you and we thank you for those men. And we thank you for being our perfect father, for loving us, for encouraging, comforting, and urging us on. In Jesus' name, amen.